Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that um, today you'd open our eyes, uh, renew our minds, allow us to see your scripture, um, your commands in a new way, and uh, allow us to, not, to walk in new realities um, that we may not yet have known. So, Father, your word is powerful, and it never returns void. And so we are eager to see the fruit come from your word being made known. We love you. Amen. All right. So I want to talk about, uh, out of the Great Commission today, some of you guys are going to feel like um, beating a dead horse, but I think the horse is just coming to life here, so I'm going to repeat it again. Um, You guys familiar with the Great Commission? It's in Matthew 28, um, one of the most widely known church verses uh, around. I'm going to, it's like second to John 3.16 probably. So I'm going to read it, and then I want to get into a few different things um, and, and really try to make it practical. Um, as I was preparing for this, I was annoying myself um, because I really wanted to talk about something that was like spiritually large and would make a big splash, and yet it just kept coming back to this practical, simplistic way of living this out. Um, and so I just, that's where I want to go today. Um, so if you're bored, I'm sorry, but it will give you things that you have to do if you want to walk faithfully in the Great Commission. So um, Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So remember that this is after he's resurrected, right? He's just spent uh, time walking on the earth. He was dead, is now alive. There is rumor being started amidst the Jews that the disciples hid him. They're trying to cover up the resurrection of Christ. And so this is the context into which Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Boom. There is no part of creation whatsoever about which Jesus does not say, that is mine. Nothing. There is no sacred secular, there is nothing that Jesus does not look at in creation and say, this is mine, I have lordship. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So first, I want to make a point to say that when Jesus sent out the 12, and this is what's known as the Great Commission or the Great Command. First thing I want to say is, he was not just giving them a message of a gospel of salvation. This was not just, here's your message about forgiveness of sin and God's love, go preach it to the ends of the earth. He was giving them a kingdom. And there's a huge difference in how we understand what our commission really is. If we only understand the Great Commission as the entrusting of a message about salvation, then that's all we'll talk about. But the scripture says that it pleases the Father to entrust to his children a kingdom. 
And what Jesus is actually giving us is authority, leadership, influence, and a kingdom. That's very, very important, and and we'll see why a little bit later. So to understand what the Great Commission actually lives like, we've got to spend a little bit of time contextualizing this. First of all, understand that Jesus gave us a kingdom, not just a message. Secondly, we have to understand that we are created for conflict. This is a bit of a challenge for us as Christians. We really like uh, to live peaceably. We don't need to feel altogether bad about this, although conviction is a good thing. Um, If you look at some of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, Moses, Gideon in particular, they're listed as heroes of the faith, and their first response when God says, go, is, no, not me, Lord. And it looks really humble at first, but as you dig into it, you realize they're just trying to get out of it because they're scared. So we're in good company. Um, God almost killed Moses because of it. Some quick thinking on his wife's behalf spared him, um, but the grace of God empowered him to go and actually be obedient to the sending. Um, But when we react in fear, we're in good company, just don't submit to it. We must understand that we are created for conflict. And the reason I say this is, if you go back to the garden in the initial creation, God places Adam and Eve in a garden, right? What's the first thing that happens? They were tempted, right? They were tempted. Do we think God was surprised by this? That he's like, oh, shoot, totally didn't see that coming. Come on, seriously. He intentionally placed Adam and Eve in a situation where he knew they would immediately enter conflict. And judging by his response to their failing the temptation... He expected them to win. He expected them to overcome. So not only did God create us for conflict, but he intended us to overcome and be victorious in it. This is foundational to Christianity, that we understand that we are created for conflict. That the ways of our kingdom and our God will oppose the ways of the world. That the gospel itself, both of salvation and of the kingdom, is at, it opposes everything of the world. That's in the Bible. So we were created for conflict. Church. For some of you, you're like, finally, it's okay. We are created for a fight. If you look at the Old Testament, it's filled with violence and conflict and fight of God's people expanding territory and kingdoms. In the New Testament, it's not filled with physical violence. It's filled with spiritual and kingdom violence. The conflict of good versus evil The conflict of the kingdom of heaven versus the ways of sin and the expansion of God's kingdom throughout the earth. Had there not been conflict, we wouldn't be here today because the kingdom never would have gone forth and expanded throughout the earth. We were created for conflict. Christians, for us, we'll commonly misapply three verses, uh, three different portions or references of scripture to support our aversion to conflict. I've done this, so I can, I can tell you from personal experience. 
The first one is in 1 Timothy uh, 2, verses 1 and 2. Um, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we're like, we're supposed to live peaceable, quiet, dignified, godly in every way. So conflict is not for us. We're supposed to just, just relax. Secondly, Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone for the holy, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. These are conditional verses. The first one is he's saying, pray for everybody, kings, people in high positions, but everyone, so that we may live a peaceful and quiet life. We pray for our leaders because we want to live a peaceable life. I hope that there's one day where we live in such a society where the kings and the laws and the ways of our culture cooperate with the ways of the kingdom. That's what we pray for. But until they do, we confront creating conflict and attempting to sway those ways of culture that are not yet in line with God's kingdom so that they are. The third reference is kind of the biggie. I can see a bunch of you guys are waiting for it. Just like, come on, give it to me. Give it to me. Can't explain this one. Bless you. Matthew, sorry, I forgot I wasn't supposed to do that. Um, Blessed are the peacemakers. It's a church. Come on, I suppose somebody say bless him. Um, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That should be the end of the sermon. Um. But just pause for a second. What did the Son of God say about peacemaking? There's a verse in Matthew 10.34. This is Jesus because I forgot to change the color of the lettering from red, so I can tell you for sure that this was Jesus. Um, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Okay, so blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But the Son of God says... Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Interesting. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is not justification for you to hate your in-laws. Sorry. So when Jesus is speaking of peacemaking, he's not speaking about being pacifistic and avoiding conflict. He's speaking about making peace between God and men. Restoring relationship between God and men. Not avoiding conflict, in fact, but bringing it because it's through conflict with men that peace can be made between them and God. But because we've lost this truth, often the church spends much of its time attempting to quell conflict and to silence those who raise their voice in opposition to the wickedness of the world. See, we've lost this truth that true peace between God and men comes through conflict. And because we've lost that truth, when conflict arises and someone in our midst creates conflict, we try to quell it. We try to shush it up. Just be quiet. Let's just, let's just get on with our peaceable, dignified life. And immediately following the peacemaker's beatitude, Jesus drops the punchline on the peacemaker calling. 
In the next three verses, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we're just about making friends with everyone, why would we ever have to worry about persecution for righteousness' sake? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, if we're just getting along with everyone and we only talk about love and forgiveness, no one would ever revile us. But Jesus is warning, as a peacemaker, these things are in your future. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a new covenant command about being a peacemaker, and Jesus equates it to the calling that was on the lives of the old covenant prophets. We read the prophets and we're like, dang, those dudes are scary. And I'm glad I don't have to carry a message like this. Mine's all about salvation, forgiveness, and love. But Jesus is saying that a true message of the kingdom will carry with it the same response from people that the prophets received. And it's the same type of message. Okay, 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 wait, wait. What does conflict have to do with discipling nations? I thought we were talking Great Commission. You're getting all into this fighty manny stuff. I thought discipling nations was, was simply just trying to get people to believe in Jesus and telling people God loves them. Isn't that the Great Commission? Just go out, tell people God loves them and wants to forgive them. That's the Great Commission, isn't it? Why are we talking about conflict? That's a nice message. It's good news. You can't tell me that we've got to be confrontational to preach the gospel, are you? There's an interesting historical fact um, happened in the 1930s in Germany. So in Germany, um, you guys remember in the 40s what happened in Germany? Um, Holocaust, World War II, some of the most atrocious things that have ever occurred um, were happening there in the most educated nation on earth, interestingly enough. And so in the 30s, there was this relationship between the church and the state that was unhealthy. And the, the church and the state, they just, everything was together, and the, the state told the church how we want things done. And so when Hitler assumes power, it's a really good setup for him to put someone in charge of the church that just tells everyone how it's going to roll. So there wasn't the church telling the state what to do, but rather the state telling the church what to do. And so Hitler's at first, first thing that he did when he assumed power in Germany was to install a man named Mueller who was to be the head of the church. And the first thing he had Mueller do was put in place uh, what we would call a muzzling act, a muzzling decree. And basically what it was was this. He went, gathered all the church leaders together, and he said, from now on, we're going to preach only the pure gospel. We're only going to preach the pure gospel. You're allowed to talk about the love of God, salvation unto the forgiveness of sins. It's the pure gospel. That's what our churches are going to be about. And the church leaders were like, sure, we'll do that. Pure gospel, gospel of salvation. So at that point, they no longer were preaching a gospel of a kingdom, but merely a gospel of salvation, love of God, forgiveness of sin. And they were allowed to preach that freely. 
but they were forbidden from talking about anything beside that. Why did Hitler do that? Because he knew that if he could convince the church leaders to stop talking with a kingdom mindset and telling the people how they should live in every area of life, that he would silence the church and he would completely make them powerless for what he was about to execute on the people of Germany. What's amazing to me, we didn't need a governmental leader to come into America and do this. The churches have done it voluntarily. Churches across our country, the only thing that's being talked about is the love of God unto forgiveness of sin. And if you talk about how you should live in marriage, how you should do business, how you should do government, you might lose your 501c3. Hitler knew that if we can get preachers to stop talking about a kingdom mindset and only talk about a gospel of salvation, we'll have won the war because the church will remain silent as we execute our strategy. And he was right. We mustn't neglect the gospel of a kingdom and preach only a gospel of salvation. <clears throat> there was one man, I think is uh, Niemöller, um, who, who stood up to Hitler in this moment when he had all the pastors together and he walked up to him and he shook his hand and he said, I will never do what you've asked me to do. And Hitler said, it's your charge before God to preach the gospel, and it's my charge to care for the people of state. And he said, no, the people of Germany are under my care, and it's my duty before God to tell them how they should live in every way. Immediately after that, his radio program was cut off, his office was bombed. Um, didn't go real well for him, uh, but there was one who stood and said, I will not bow the knee um, to Baal. So the faith chapter in Hebrews 11 also points to some who confronted the culture of their day. Um, Hebrews 11.32, it's talking about all these heroes of the faith. Gideon, uh, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. Conquered kingdoms. Enforced justice. Obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword and were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others were, were suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. This was a different kind than the kind we know about now, stoned. Um, that was throwing rocks, not inhalation, sorry. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these confronted the culture of their day, created conflict. And it's very, very important for us to note 
that some were victorious and others perished. It's up to God to decide which end will befall us. It is up to, to us to take up his cause. Some were victorious and conquered kingdoms and, and, and saw justice enforced throughout their land. Others were sawn in two. They took up the same cause of conflict and saying, this is the way the kingdom should be. It is not up to us how culture responds to our message. We pray that they would embrace it, because I'd rather not be sawn in two. But it's our responsibility to present it, God's cause, in conflict. And it's up to him to decide how it will be received. And them. So where do we do this today? Where, where does this where does this happen? Should we all just quit our jobs and become like street preaching activists? Like lobbying and carrying signs and stuff? No. That's the problem with it. It's, it's kind of too simplistic. 1 Corinthians 7.17, Paul's talking here about marriage, right? He's, he's talking about marriage, but he gives us an insight about how we should respond when God starts to grip our hearts about this type of stuff. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord had assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Then don't seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Don't quit your job and become a street preaching activist. You don't have to. Paul says right here, wherever you were when God gripped your heart, stay there. He did it intentionally. He, he was very, very purposeful about where he called you. If you abandon that, Simply because you get excited, you're walking away from a position in which he meant you to be influential. Stay where you were when you were called. Remain as you were. Stay in your marriage. You come to Jesus and you're like, woo! And my wife is a nag. She doesn't want to do this and she's an unbeliever and she lives this way and I'm so passionate about Jesus, I'm leaving. He says, no. No. I, I did this on purpose. Stay in your job. Stay in your circumstance. Because this is where you start the Great Commission. This is where you start discipling nations. In your marriage in your job, in your family. This is where the Great Commission begins. Your circumstance, your marriage, your work, whatever, it's your ministry. It's your platform for conflict. Do you guys know that when you look at 
the, act, the word for ministry, I know now we see it as the, the person who is the pastor or like serves in a religious function, but it's actually a word of service. T- attached to it is um, attendant um, to a table, a table attendant. So in other words, waiting tables. So there's, there's not this large gap between regular life, secular, and sacred, which is what we think of it now, where ministry is the sacred stuff that we do, and that's like intentionally trying to make people believe in Jesus. And then the secular stuff is all the other stuff. Ministry is all in one. The way we wait the table is the same way we pray for the guy who's sitting at the table. No difference. Our job is our ministry. It's our platform for conflict. If the only time we teach God ways is in the church, then nobody who does not step foot in church has the privilege of hearing how wonderful are God's ways. That's why Paul wrote of the beautiful feet of those who bring good news. They can't believe if they don't know who will tell them if the only time we're doing ministry happens inside the confines of a church. It's interesting to me that when Jesus sent out the 12, that the first thing he did not tell them was, go find a building. He said, go. Not saying buildings are bad, I'm just, there's something to be gleaned there. So how do we do this today? We know where we do this now. I'm supposed to do it in the workplace, right? I have a job. I have a place where I'm around humans. How do I do this? I know where now. I don't really like it. I like it when I can do it in a small group, and it's in the coffee house next to the church or in the church basement. And, you know, when people hear me talking, they don't look weird, and I'm not yelling. Um, Where in the workplace? This is a little bit uncomfortable. Okay, but... I think I can swallow that. How do I do this? So I'm picturing in my mind, now I have to smash into my boss's office. I'm dressed in camel hair, and I have a mouthful of wild locusts, and I'm yelling, repent or die, wicked sinner. Is this, this, seem, this is conflict. I mean, I think. Um, I would submit that that's not the best method. Um, Though I'm sure a few of us have probably tried that method and can attest that it does not work too effectively. Um, Let's just, we could probably use the Bible for this one, I guess. Um, Paul's methodology when he had the opportunity to speak with a powerful ruler of his time happens in Acts 24, verse 25. He gets the opportunity to come before Felix, the governor of the the day. And now this is the moment where I would see myself or or one of us standing before a ruling leader of the day and telling him, repent, you heathen dog. You're on and right? And, you know, we're sweating and we smell and because this is conflict. But Paul actually, this is really weird, and I didn't expect to see this in the Bible, but it's, it's here. It's in Acts even. I, the Acts of the Apostles, there's a word in here that we're going to be really uncomfortable with. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So for two years, Paul is summoned before Felix, a ruling governor of the day, 
and he reasons with him over time. He reasons with him. Guys, just because we have faith doesn't mean we need to abandon reason and logic. God's not dumb. He's brilliant beyond measure. All the ways that he does things have a reason, and they're right for a reason and a purpose. We don't have to be afraid of reasonable, logical conversations. Paul demonstrates this. He was, he was brilliant. He knew the scripture in and out. He understood the law. He'd spent time with Jesus and understood his ways. And so he's able to sit in the presence of a governor, a king, and say, this is why righteousness is coming to the earth. And because of righteousness coming to the earth, there's judgment coming upon the earth because they love darkness and do not embrace the light. So when we create conflict, it doesn't have to be in the, mo- the mode of John the Baptist. I'm going to say something real quick about John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist. Not everybody is John the Baptist. John was John. None of the 12 disciples had to be John. Jesus didn't even have to be John. So just because we love God, and we want to throw ourselves wholeheartedly into his kingdom doesn't mean we need to look like John, the Baptist, the baptizer. You may look like Jesus, and you may be accused of spending time with gluttons and drunkards, friend of tax collector and sinners. You may be like Luke, a doctor. Remain as you were when you were called. Present conflict in that place, with those that are around you, and you don't need to do it like John. You need to ask God, God, what is it supposed to look like from me? What is this supposed to live like for me? So back to our initial text. Jesus says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm giving you a kingdom. Not just a message of salvation. I'm giving you a kingdom. Go and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. Go and make disciples. What does make disciples mean? Who converts a lost soul into a child of God? Do we? By what manner is someone born of God, born of the Spirit? By our argumentation or by a supernatural work of God? New birth of the Spirit does not happen by repeating a few lines of Scripture or by praying a prayer. It is a supernatural work of God. It seems as though somewhere we got distracted and we've been attempting to do God's job and neglecting to do ours. Because what's our job? We'll get there in a second. See, we've been attempting to do evangelism. We've been attempting to force conversations and trying to convince people and argue people into believing in Jesus. And meanwhile, the enemy has been discipling nations. The enemy has been teaching the world how to think. We've been trying to convince 
people one at a time to believe in Jesus. It's not that we ever neglect that. Personal evangelism is always important, but we've neglected discipling nations. It's time for us to get back to discipling nations and allowing God to make converts. If you remember Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he reasonably and historically demonstrated how Jesus was the one spoken of throughout history. And throughout the testimony of the eyewitnesses that were around, Jesus had fulfilled the words of David, their patriarch. And he spoke in a manner which all of his hearers would understand. All of the people that were listening were familiar with the story of David and that David was their patriarch. They knew this story. It was their own. It was their history. So he wasn't plundering into a lost country who knew nothing about Judaism and just plopping this on them and hoping they would get it. He presented it to them in a way they would understand, in a reasonable historical fashion, and he founded it on the basis of eyewitness testimony. And he told them that if they would turn from their wicked ways and be baptized, that they would receive the Spirit, and they did. But before he told them that, his presentation, reasonably, historically, based on eyewitness information, caused them to be cut to the heart. It wasn't through the volume of his screaming. It wasn't that he made them feel guilty enough. It was a supernatural work of the Spirit of God that caused them to be cut to the heart, and they said, what now must we do? And he told them, repent and be baptized, and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were. And 3,000 were added to their number that day. Make disciples does not mean to convert. That's God's job. Disciple means to train, to teach, to instruct. To disciple someone as a verb is to teach them, to train them, to instruct them. So Jesus is telling the disciples, train nations how to think and how to live. Instruct nations how to think, how to live, how to act. Teach them the ways that it's supposed to be. I'll convert them. It's our responsibility and honor to tell the world of the ways of our God. To tell them of his kingdom and how things are meant to be. We also get to implement these realities in our personal lives, our families, our churches, and our jobs. And as we do, we teach those around us to observe that which God has commanded us. Just like Jesus said, teach them all that I have commanded you. We aren't promised that people will respond favorably to us, though we pray that they will. But their response is not our responsibility. Giving them the opportunity to hear and respond is. I believe that to truly disciple nations, we cannot have a superficial knowledge of God. We must know his kingdom and his ways. We must know him. How can we disciple nations if we do not know how God would have the nations function? You know, in some ways, this message of salvation is like a cop-out so that we don't really have to get to know God and all of his ways and his workings. We know that people are sinners and they need to repent, so we'll just go with that message all day. But it spares us from having to get to know him so that when they ask, how's this supposed to look? We have an answer. 
I know my father. I know his ways and his kingdom. And this is how life is supposed to look as it pertains to marriage, as it pertains to family, as it pertains to business, as it pertains to government. But to have those answers, we have to know our God and we have to know his ways. So first step, what things in my personal life are not in line with God's ways? Just personally, I, if I'm going to go start teaching others, I better instruct myself first. So what things in me are not in line with God's ways that I need to be discipled in? Second thing, what things in my marriage or family are not in line with God's ways? What opportunity do I have in my marriage or in my family to instruct my spouse or my children or my sister or my brother, particularly in my case, um, about the ways of God? He's on the worship team this week. I forgot he's going to be up here after me. Dang, just cut his mic. What things in my family or marriage are not in line with God's ways? I have an opportunity in each of these settings to write things. This is what it's supposed to live like. Third step, what things in my friendships or workplace are not in line with God's ways? In each circumstance, we have the opportunity to learn and teach others how God's kingdom would look if we changed our ways to stop doing wrong and do as God would have you do, which is what is repentance. You know, we talk about these seven spheres of influence, or there's like 90 different names for them. And the simple mathematical implication is that, you know, 85% of the population is called primarily outside the church, that your ministry is outside the church, 85% of us. 85% of us are meant to be influential and have ministry outside these walls. And yet I think we've long since struggled with that reality. That's why pastor gets up here and every single week he prays, as you go out into your fields of ministry, that doesn't mean next door at the coffee house. That means your job, your home, your marriage. 85% of us are called outside these walls. And I'm convinced that if 85% of us embraced that calling and that ministry on our lives that our churches would function a lot better. Because right now we have 85% of our population trying to jam our energies into one little church. And our leadership and our influence into one little church when our ideas are meant to be influenced out there. And we should be coming in here to gather together in our building, in our setting, as a body, as a church where we can worship become rejuvenated, charged up. By the time I get here on Sundays, I'm a mess. When pastor asked me to preach this week, I almost cried. I'm an emotional train wreck. But I want to get, come in here because I get to see Ryan dance and pastor dance, and there's nothing like that. Thank the Lord. Pleasures for more in my right hand. This is meant to be the place where we come, we meet with God and one another, and we leave again with vision for what happens out there for 85% of us. 15% primarily function in here. So where are you meant to be called? Remain as you were. 
Use that as your ministry. And if God should so choose at some point to call you out and bring you in, let him do that. But remain as you were until he does. So I'm going to pray. Worship team, you can start heading up. God, use us to disciple nations. We want to carry a message of a kingdom that goes beyond just a message of salvation. Salvation is the entry point. Jesus, there is no ending to the gratitude and the love which we owe you for allowing us salvation and permitting us salvation. But beyond wonder, it doesn't end there. It begins there. It's the access point to the kingdom. So, Father, equip us with a message of a kingdom and an understanding of your ways. Use us to disciple nations, wherever that would be, in our homes, in our marriages, in our workplaces. We want to be the ones that fulfill your great commission, and we teach the world your ways. So, Father, teach us your ways that we might teach those around us how your kingdom is meant to operate in the beauty of the good news of the kingdom of God. We love you.